you leave food out for too long, what happens to it? It spoils. It goes bad, right? Well, this has been a problem that's gone on for probably since the fall. Food has gone bad, and we've looked for ways to preserve the food. There's been ways of adding salt to the food. There's drying the food out. How many of you like beef jerky? <laughs> drying out the food, right? We preserve it by drying it out. We refrigerate the food. We freeze food. There's fermenting processes or pasteurization processes of preserving food or even canning food. How many of you have been canning food this year? Some of you, yep. So we can food in order to preserve it, right? Well, we didn't plant a garden this year, which our garden is usually like, it's small, but we didn't plant anything this year, but we've had the opportunity to enjoy some fresh fruits and vegetables, and there's nothing like the fresh fruits and vegetables that are right out of the garden, right? They hadn't had to sit on a truck, they were picked when they were at their correct ripeness, they haven't had to sit on a truck for hours or days getting to their location, coming from other areas of the United States or other countries. It's just good to have that food, and we want to keep that, right? And so we freeze the food so we can get it out later and enjoy that freshness, or we can the food so we can get it out later and enjoy that freshness, right? Well, the same thing uh, Paul's going to talk about in our passage this morning, just like food needs to be preserved, we need to preserve the gospel as well. It's important to preserve the gospel. We're working through our series, which I've called Set Free by Grace, as we dive into the book of Galatians, uh, as we study through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've gone through chapter one so far, and let me recap a little bit of what Paul talked about. Paul gives an introduction of who he is, and in a lot of his letters, he writes a lot of things before he gets to the issue, but in this book of Galatians, he just jumps right into the issues that he knew the churches were facing because he was worried about what was going on. Apparently, the churches in Galatia had had Judaizers come in, by what I mean by the term of Judaizers, is those who are evangelizing Judaism, they're promoting the Jewish faith, and they're saying that anybody who believes in Jesus, including the Gentiles, need to be circumcised, need to take on the ceremonial rituals, as well as the dietary restrictions that the Jewish people had as well, that they will not be saved, they will not be forgiven by God unless they take on the Jewish pieces of the faith as well. And so Paul lays out in the first chapter the foundation of the gospel because he had communicated the gospel message to them and he'd given them a pure gospel that did not have any of those pieces or restrictions in it. And we remember that the gospel in its purest form is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so often we want to add things to that. Just like the Judaizers, the Jewish people who were coming in, wanted them to add in circumcision, 
dietary restrictions and the ceremonial rituals that they had in their lives. But Paul preached specifically that it is through Jesus Christ alone that we are saved and specifically through his death, burial, and resurrection. In the second half of the first chapter, remember, Paul begins to tell his story. He begins to recap about how Jesus saved him and the transformation that happened in his life where he turned from persecutor to preacher. Remember, that was the phrase that people were using of him, that this is the persecutor turned preacher. Well, in chapter 2, the beginning verses here, we're going to look at chapter or verses 1 through 10, Paul is kind of continuing that story with just a little bit different emphasis. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open it to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. So Paul says, then after 14 years, well, what's the timing here? It's probably at 14 years after his original um, meeting Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, so that we freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that we might bring us, so that they might bring us into slavery. Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul is writing again, defending the gospel that he has preached here. And if I was to give you a key portion of this text that kind of gives you the idea, it's found at the end of verse 5. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul is seeking to preserve the heart of the gospel message. He's seeking to preserve the gospel that was given to him by Jesus Christ. And he's confirming that through the other apostles, those that are found in Jerusalem. So as Paul seeks to preserve the truth, we can ask the question, what are some ways we can follow his example Follow Paul's example of preserving the truth. The first way I see in the text is being accountable to each other for the gospel. We can be accountable to each other for the gospel. Paul recalls going to Jerusalem 
It says, 14 years later, I went to Jerusalem. It was me and Barnabas and Titus. We traveled together. And if you remember, Barnabas means son of encouragement. And we see that throughout Acts, Barnabas encouraging. Uh, him and Barnabas traveled in the, on, during the first missionary journey. And so Barnabas and Paul were missionary companions that sought to preach the gospel. If you remember back in Acts, it was Barnabas who brought Paul to the Damascus believers and introduced him to them because they were afraid of Paul, because Paul was known as the persecutor. Paul was going door to door and saying, are there any Christians in here? And taking them out and persecuting them, locking them in prison. Paul also brings Titus with him, and we learn in the text, he says very clearly, he was a Greek, he was a Gentile, he was a non-Jewish person. Titus was Paul's real-life example of God's grace being given to not only the Jewish people, but the Gentiles. If there was a show and tell, this is Paul saying, look, here's Titus. He's an example. He's a Greek. God has given him grace. And I don't know if there was a testing process to find out, but he was accepted by the church in Jerusalem. And Paul, I don't think, was saying Wow, look at what I've done. Here's Titus. But rather, I think Paul was saying, Wow, look at what God has done. Here is Titus. And that was what he was emphasizing to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, seeing what God had done. And Paul makes a note here that Titus didn't feel like he had to be circumcised that he was not forced to be circumcised verse 3 though he was a Greek and so the Jerusalem Christians accepted him but beyond that Paul says that he brought the gospel message and I, I like Paul writes kind of how I like he likes to use like parentheses and dashes and and all of this stuff that we've kind of brought into the English language or brought over from the English language but he says I though verse 2 he said though I met privately before those who seemed influential and, and he likes to use that phrase he uses it several times in this passage about those who seem influential and you might think that that's kind of a dig on those who he later mentions are Peter and James and John but he's not doing a dig at them at all. He's not putting them down. He's using the terminology that the Judaizers had used when they were going against Paul to the Galatians. See, Paul has heard that the Jews came in and said, there are influential Jews in the church in Jerusalem. And they're saying these things that you need to add on all this stuff. These are the pillars of the church, the Christian church in Jerusalem. And, and they're Jewish people and you need to follow circumcision you need to follow all these pieces and so Paul is taking their language the Judaizers language 
those who seemed influential, and he's using it to proclaim that the gospel that he preached was not any different. Later, he calls them those who seemed to be pillars in verse 9. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is another term for Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, they perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul receives the right hand of fellowship, basically meaning that they approve of the gospel, that his gospel is no different, that he is accountable for what he is preaching. So Paul has stated that there is only one gospel. He said that there are those who came in and tried to preach a different gospel, talking about the Judaizers. That's verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 6. So what does it look like for us to be accountable to each other for the gospel? That's a question we have to ask. If I tell you, be accountable to each other for the gospel, what does that look like? Here are a couple things. I think it means we need to know the gospel. Know the gospel. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. What are the traditions? He's not talking about circumcision and ceremonial rituals and dietary restrictions. He's talking about the traditions of the gospel. Hold to the traditions of the gospel that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm and hold to the traditions. So we need to know the gospel. We need to know the gospel. If I were to ask you the gospel this morning, I'd hope you'd be able to turn to the person next to you and proclaim what the gospel is. Because it's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, right? Repeat that with me. The gospel is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We need to know the gospel. Why? Because we also should defend the gospel. We need to defend the gospel. And we'll get it more into this one in my second point, but... Paul writes this in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to talk about the gospel. Paul says, always be prepared to make a defense. Why? Because Christians of that day were being attacked for what they believed. I don't know about you, if you've ever been in a situation where you've been asked, why do you do that? Or why do you act that way? Why do you choose to get up early on a Sunday morning and go hang out with a bunch of other people in a room and sing songs and listen to a guy up on stage. Why do you do that? 
Well, we need to always be prepared to make a defense who, to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. We do that because of the hope that is in us through the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. We need to know the gospel, defend the gospel, and be unified in the gospel. Be unified in the gospel. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are uh, job titles for those who are, are in the church but they're not necessarily employment titles. There are those who God gave gifts of being an apostle, those who God gave gifts of being a prophet or an evangelist or a shepherd and a teacher. Those gifts God gave in the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Don't you want to get to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ someday? Yeah, we're all working through this process of getting there. We're all kind of at different levels of, of trying to get to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we're all also trying to attain to the unity of the faith. This is why we as a church work with other churches in our community. Because we're unified by one thing. And that is the gospel message. That is that the gospel message needs to be preached. That is there are sinners out there who need to hear the gospel message. We can be unified by that. Our services can look completely different. We can have some different beliefs and critiques about maybe how we do things or what we say we believe. But we're unified on the message of the gospel. Not only did Paul talk about this, but Jesus talked about this in John chapter 17. His prayer for believers, he said, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus was praying for his followers, praying for us as future followers that we would be perfectly one and that purpose of our unity is to display Christ's divinity and his love for us and each other. The unity was to display his divinity and love. That the world may know that you sent me, that's Jesus' divinity, and love them even as you loved me. The final way I see of us being accountable is, is teach the gospel. Teaching the gospel. Uh, Paul in Colossians chapter 3 said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. 
with Jesus' words, with the words that he's given to the apostles who wrote the New Testament, teaching each other, admonishing each other in wisdom. You know, we're learning when we're up here singing. Even some of the older songs we sing, we're learning, we're teaching and admonishing each other through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I, I love that our church has a mixture, that we don't try to focus completely on contemporary songs or completely on traditional songs. We try to blend our music here. Sometimes that's through different people leading the worship, but I like that we do it in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we're eclectic like that. And we teach and admonish each other through those things. So is there someone in your life that holds you accountable to those things of the gospel, to knowing the gospel, defending the gospel, being unified in the gospel and teaching the gospel? Well, I think as a church, we hold one another accountable through Sunday school classes and things like that. I think in your household, Stacy and I probably hold each other accountable in knowing the gospel, defending the gospel, being unified in the gospel, teaching the, the gospel. This story is not in my notes, but it just popped in my head. Um, we uh, were in Indianapolis. I think it was spring break. Did we go down there or was it summer time? We went down there both. Spring. Okay. And summer. We were down there twice. Anyways, one of the times we were down in Indianapolis, because it's not in my notes, so I'm just going off the cuff here. Um, William fell asleep in the car. It happens quite often. But we try not to make a lot of noise because it's better if he gets his sleep. And so we were trying to figure out lunch and some things. And so we ended up going into a Walmart just to waste some time and walk around. It was, it was during that super hot stretch. So I think it was summer. It was during that super hot stretch where it was just everything was hot. So we we were kind of taking turns going in and out of Walmart, so one of us was staying in the car, and one of us was kind of going in with the girls if they needed to use the bathroom or whatever like that. Well, during the time of my wandering around with the girls, we ended up in the jewelry section. Who would have guessed, right? Two girls <laughs> ending up in the jewelry section. So they were looking for little trinkets or something they could get, you know, and, and I had a guy walk up to me who said, hey, could you, just, just out of nowhere, in, in a Walmart, hey, could you buy me lunch? Could you buy me a meal? And so not thinking, I went to my automatic response. I went to, no, I, not right now. I, I don't want to do that right now. Because I had two girls with me. And I, I didn't want to try to explain to them why we were trying to go buy this guy lunch. And, and it was really a thing for me about timing. God kind of impressed that on my heart later that day, and I went, okay, would this have been a wonderful time for me to buy this guy lunch, proclaim the gospel to him that I'm going to do this because God loves me and I'm going to show that love to you? And it would have been a great example to two little girls who would have seen that. I failed at that. But God impressed that on my heart that if that happens again, I'm going to think differently about that. That is a way to be accountable. And I've told Stacy that. I've told a couple other people that. That's a way to be accountable to the gospel. 
I think that was an opportunity for me to proclaim the gospel, to teach the gospel, to know the gospel that I did not do. We need to be accountable to each other for the gospel. Uh, Secondly, we need to defend the gospel. We're going to get a little bit more into this than what we did when I just said defend the gospel. Uh, So Paul communicates that there were false brothers coming in, that they were sent in to spy out their freedom, that they wanted to take them back into slavery, verse 4, and they wanted them to uh, take on the legalistic ways of the Jewish religion. But Paul emphasizes in verse 5 there, he says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Speaking of this time when he was in the Jerusalem church. You see, had they yielded at that time, the Christian faith we know would not be the Christian faith we know. The Christian faith we know and believe would just be a small subset of, of the Jewish religion but because they stood up for the gospel in that moment in the meeting that Paul's talking about in the Jerusalem church they defended the gospel from attack and it preserved the gospel for Gentile believers and preserved the gospel for us because they defended the gospel We're responsible for upholding the truth of the gospel. See, just as Paul cautioned that there could be false brothers who infiltrated their meetings, we have to watch out for people who pervert the gospel as well. Not just in our church, but in our minds also. Because sometimes our thoughts can be perverted from the gospel. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7, Beware having a hard time saying things today. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, Jesus said, by their fruits. If somebody you see is stirring up hate, they're probably not preaching the gospel Because the gospel is not about hatred. The gospel is about God's love. So beware of false prophets. Why? Because they disguise themselves. Peter would later say they are that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour Christians. We need to defend the gospel and stand firm in the faith that we have received from Jesus, from the apostles' writing of the New Testament. We need to stand firm in the faith. It's all throughout the New Testament. You hear about false believers, false prophets. Peter writes about it. John writes about it in his books. Paul writes about it multiple times. There were tons of verses, so I picked one. Paul said this to Timothy, the end of his ministry. We're reading Galatians right now, probably the first book that Paul wrote because of the heresy that was coming in, the false beliefs that were being taught to the church in Galatia. He wrote down this letter as fast as he could and sent it out. At the end of his ministry, Paul is still writing to Timothy... 
by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. What happens if you want to guard something? You lock it up. You put it in a safe. You walk away from your car these days. You got to hit the little button and hear the beep. You leave your house for a period of time. You want to lock it to guard it. Some of you are smiling because you don't do that, but I'm not going to tell you who's smiling and who's not today. You guard the things you treasure. And so Paul is saying you treasure the gospel, so guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Well, what does it look like to guard our faith? It looks like recognizing God's word is truth and being on guard against the devil who wants to us to believe lies. Recognizing that God's word is the truth that it is the authority for our lives and being on guard against the devil and the world against their lies. But the good news is we're not alone in this task. We have each other, but even greater than that, Paul tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We're not alone in that. We have the Holy Spirit empowering us to guard the good deposit entrusted to us. Paul will later say this in Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And we'll dive more into that passage when we get to it. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Finally this morning, preserving the truth of the gospel, we need to be living out... Wow, that was... It's up there. There it is. It disappeared for a minute. Living out the gospel through action. We need to be living out the gospel through action. There's this event that happened back in Acts chapter 11. We're going to look at a little bit of it that impacted the conversation that Paul was having with the apostles in Jerusalem and why they told him in verse 10 that they needed to remember the poor, which Paul was very eager to do. Well, this happened back in Acts 11, so you kind of need to remember the context. And it says this, and one of them, there were uh, prophets who were standing up and were prophesying, and it says, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is what is being talked about at the end of verse 10. See, Paul in verse 2, said, I went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation and set before them. He's talking about the gospel. But part of the reason he went up to Jerusalem was to deliver the funds that the church had put together for the church in Jerusalem. And so they encourage him in verse 10 to remember the poor, the very thing that Paul was eager to do. You see, sometimes... Our theology, what we believe, gets disconnected from how we act. And what they're doing is they're encouraging Paul, don't let your theology, the fact of the gospel is, is front and center, the fact that the gospel is pure, don't forget that that is connected to how you're also supposed to act and behave. 
your theology, the fact that Jesus did this for you, should cause you, and they say in verse 10, should cause you to be giving, be helping those who are in need. You see, our faith is to propel our lives to impact our communities, our families, and our neighborhoods. John says this in 1 John, little children, he loved that term, beloved children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Many people think that Paul and the other authors were saying different things, but they all said the same thing. We need our theology, we need our belief to match our actions. We need our talk to match our walk. And that's what John says. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let our actions match our beliefs. Todd Wilson said this, and this is a comment that I really appreciated. The gospel doesn't challenge us to give to others what we ourselves don't have. It challenges us to give to others what we've already been given in abundance. The gospel isn't telling us Go give somebody a mansion because you don't own a mansion. The gospel is telling you, give to others what you've been given in abundance. What is the thing we've been given in the greatest abundance? God's love. So how can we show that to others? Satan would love to pervert the gospel. He'd love it to not have its freshness or its impact on people's lives. Sometimes we're told by our culture that sinning is not a big deal. Sometimes we're told by our culture that I can do enough, if I do enough good stuff, I'll go to heaven. If I can just make myself better then I can go to heaven. If I am good enough, if my good, I've heard this one before, if my good outweighs my bad, as long as the scales are, I have one ounce more of good, then I'll be okay. But that is not the gospel. Because the gospel is we're only saved through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So are you willing to stand up to preserve the truth of the gospel? I was watching, I tend to watch things online throughout the week, and I heard a sermon by a pastor, one I've watched before. But as I was listening to his sermon, I realized that he was saying a lot of good things, but most of them were not from the Bible. He was saying a lot of good things that were more from psychology than he was from God's Word. And I think in our churches, there is this, if we can say a lot of good things, people will come and want to hear us. And we, if we can make a lot of proverbial statements or things that can be put up on Twitter or Instagram, these one little short liners, then people will come and listen. But it's not by the power of man's word that I can stand up here with any authority. 
I have no authority without this. It's God's word that has the authority, not mine. And so I proclaim God's word in the gospel message because it is only through God's word that we have authority. So are you willing to stand up to preserve the truth of the gospel? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the willingness of the apostles at that time to stand up and preserve the gospel message. I thank you that those effects we feel today, that we are free to worship you without the legalism that was attached to the Jewish faith. We are free to worship you without... the hundreds of laws that had been added to your word. Father, we're free to worship you. The Bible calls us to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, may our lives reflect that. May our actions be a reflection of our beliefs and what the gospel has done in our lives and how it's been a, a encouragement, a proclamation to us to live lives that bring you honor and glory. Not because of a list of rules, but because of what you've done for us. That it is out of our faith that we proclaim faith to others. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.